Welcome to Backstory, the show that explains the history behind today's headlines. I'm Brian Bellow. And I'm Joanne Freeman. If you're new to the podcast, each week, along with our colleagues Nathan Connolly and Ed Ayers, we explore a different aspect of American history. And this week, we're exploring American history with some of our listeners, too. Next month, Backstory wraps up production after more than 12 years. That's an amazing sentence. And to commemorate the show, over the last six months, you've heard Best of Backstory episodes presented by each of our five hosts, past and present. But on this episode, we wanted to hear from you, the listener, about your favorite moments from the show. We got some great responses. I'm not surprised about that because we have great listeners. And I want to thank everyone who got in touch. You guys chose a range of topics, each of them meaningful to the present moment in their own way. So on the final installment of our Best of Backstory series, we're really excited to present to you your favorite backstory moments. You're going to learn how residents of a North Carolina town are still grappling with painful memories from an industrial tragedy almost 30 years ago. And you'll hear about the history and ongoing controversy of the Confederate monuments along Richmond's Monument Avenue. But first up, we have a message from Backstory listener Chris Wade with his favorite moment from the show's history. My name is Chris Wade in Scottsville, Virginia, not far from the land of Wahoo Wah. The episode that really caught me was from years ago. The subject was mail, how the Postal Service created a network to unite the various parts of the infant country, sort of a national nervous system. And the show went on to cover how Mark Twain and Buffalo Bill brought the Pony Express into popular culture. It even got to uh, talking about a, an experiment with rocket mail. So uh, right now, when the Postal Service is getting a lot of notice, good and bad, might be a good time for us to hear a reminder of the vital role it has played in our history. This is Chris Wade in Scottsville, Virginia. Thank you. Okay, I have to say, right off the cuff, this reaches all the way back to my time period, so I'm feeling good. <laughs> exactly. I'm feeling good that we, we're doing something that stretches the whole span of American history. Well, Joanne, you know that in the bids, there are topics called evergreen because they're always relevant. And I don't think there's any topic more permanently relevant than the humble post office. I totally agree with you, Brian. That's absolutely true. And I'm guessing now we're going to hear how and why. You bet. So here's the segment, Nickel and Don, from our 2012 show, You've Got Mail. I introduced the segment with former Backstory host Peter Onuf. So, Peter, now that I've got the mail, I kind of want to know where the system that delivers it came from. Well, you got no mail, you got no country, okay? Mail is absolutely important for stitching these distant settlements together into a more perfect union. And that's why it's right there in the Constitution. Article 1, Section 8 provides for post offices and post roads. And without that system of information exchange, there's going to be no United States of America. Because what does United mean? United means the post office. 
So de Tocqueville's surprised to see this in the wilds of Michigan, but people moving there would have been expecting to find that. Yeah, absolutely. In fact, uh, that makes it possible for them to move there. Who knows? They might have read about this Michigan land in some eastern newspaper. And by the time they get there in the 1830s, things are starting to change. They're counting on this system of postal services and roads so much that they want to start sending letters. But there's one thing standing in their way, Peter. Different rates of postage for different kinds of mail. A newspaper could travel for one cent to a subscriber, and a newspaper could be exchanged for free between one newspaper publisher and another. This is David Hinken. He's a professor of history at UC Berkeley. In order to pay for the, the, the system, uh, the government had two options. One is, is simply to you know, raise revenue and consider it an expense of government. I'm, a, I'm opposed to that right off the bat. So you right. can't do that. What else are they got? The alternative was to charge other users. Sometimes when you set up a network you know, or a highway, uh, you decide which users to charge, even though lots of people may, may, may benefit from it. So the uh, decision was to charge people who sent letters. What was the rationale of, of, of tapping uh, letter writers? The rationale was that they were using it for a private purpose, I whereas see, the newspapers gotcha. were using it for what was regarded as a more public purpose. How much did it cost to send a letter then? It was extraordinarily expensive to send letters. I'll give you an example. If you sent a single sheet letter between Albany, New York, and Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, so that's about 400 miles, uh-huh. um, that would be 25 cents. So that's between one quarter and one third of the average daily wage of a non-farm laborer in the United States at that time. Mm. Or let me put it differently. You want to send a letter from New York City up to the capital, say to Albany. Um, Postage would be more than 50% higher than shipping a barrel of flour over the same route. (laughs) But you could send a newspaper for one cent, and you could send a newspaper for free if you sent it to someone else who published a newspaper. Oh, see, and I'm already thinking... Couldn't you cheat that system in some way? Right. You, you, there, there, were, there were ways uh, around it. Uh, the main thing that people did uh, was that they didn't write letters. I think that's the first thing I want to stress. It would be an extraordinarily important occasion that would warrant such a thing. But some people had a way around it. And here is where folks began to get a, a little bit more clever. You took a newspaper and you, and you put it in, and if you wrote on it, uh, as people sometimes did, you know, hi, mom, I'm fine. Uh, that wouldn't work because the postmaster would see that. And then when uh, the recipient went to pick up the newspaper, the recipient would be charged a letter rate. So what you had to do was somehow disguise it. So in 1840, a story appeared in the New Orleans Picayune describing one of the tricks. Someone sent a newspaper from New York to Boston, and he addressed the newspaper to John Garrigo Smith. Um, and the newspaper explained that that middle name, that bizarre middle name, G-A-R-I-G-O, uh, was uh, actually an acronym, and it meant goods all received in good order. In other words, instead of an ordinary business correspondence confirming the receipt of goods from Boston to New York, this milliner was able to do that by uh, simply addressing a newspaper with that name and sending it for the newspaper rate of one cent. Very clever. Here's something more elaborate. So there was a man who wanted to um, communicate with his father without paying the postage. So he penciled into the margins of the newspaper a drawing of an awl, A-W-L. It's something you can make a hole with in a, a leather strap. The awl was pointing to a, a well, like a water well. Um, so this, this is a rebus, which where the son tells the father that all is well. Uh, 
people did their best to send letters through paper rates, and the post office was concerned about it. Uh, a memo from the Postmaster General um, in the 1840s said that any writing that conveyed an idea to the person to whom the paper was sent or informed him of any distinct fact was subject to letter postage. <laughs> and this actually created problems with, uh, with actually addresses. Uh, you could get in trouble for writing an address because as the postmaster general himself said, if A writes his name on the margin of a paper, sends it to a friend by mail, he conveys to him several distinct ideas and facts. First of all, that he's alive. Second, that he's well enough to write. <laughs> Three, that he remembers him. And fourth, that he has sent him by mail this very newspaper, um, <laughs> and that tells him where he is, right? So this was in some ways a, a, a logically untenable position right. that the post office was taking by 1842. Um, well, why then? Why the 1840s? Newspaper's been around a long time. Why, why did it take this long to, to occur to people? In part because people were, were, were moving uh, at faster rates and at much further distances for all kinds of reasons. And in part because the postal system itself encouraged people to imagine that they had some connection. Right, so right. If, if you grew up in Vermont and you moved to, to Michigan, uh, the fact that there is a postal route and you can send a, a small-town newspaper from Vermont to a small-town Michigan does create a, a sense of proximity uh, yeah. that probably um, encouraged and, and cultivated more desire for people to stay in touch. So the flip side of that, of course, is if you know you can stay in touch, you may be more likely to move, to take longer trips. Well, I'm sure that the government and the post office were uh, eager to supply this longing, this expectation now to communicate uh, across space. So did they adapt and provide Americans what they needed? In the end, in 1845 and then again in 1851, Congress radically both slashed the cost of postage and sort of redesigned the fee scale. They made it based on weight rather than number of pages or distance, congressmen said, well, if we lower the postage, more people will use it and it won't cost us any more money. But that argument was only plausible because congressmen thought that there was a demand to use it. Incidentally, the right. demand was in part illustrated by things like the tricks that I was talking about. David Hinken is a professor of history at the University of California, Berkeley. His book is The Postal Age, the Emergence of Modern Communications in 19th Century America. 